Well, last week we turned uh, to the Gospel of Mark for the first time. Uh, Pastor Nathan led us to introduce us a little bit to this book. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles there. Uh, but as we do so, it leads me to just uh, to ask and think, because we're coming now to the really what you could say is the pinnacle of redemption history. Okay. And so I'm wondering, and I'm asking, what does the story of Jesus Christ mean to me? How am I coming to this text of Scripture? To Listen, the one who is our Lord and Savior, and what's being written here about His earthly life. How am I approaching this? Is this another blah, blah, blah Sunday sermon, or is this... Wow, I get to see and experience again who Jesus Christ is. So this should really excite us, and I hope that you come expectantly uh, to this book each week. So whether it's the first time or the hundredth time, I pray that God awakens us to who He is again. So I'm in Mark chapter 1. Would you stand with me? Let's read together. We ended with verse 8 last week, and so we're going to pick up from verse 9. Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son. With You I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to Him. You can be seated. Lord, again, as we come to Your story, Your arrival, I pray that we might have a sense of eagerness and desire to see who You really are and to experience that again anew in our lives. So thank You for this passage of Scripture that we get to look at together today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, one reason we're moving from Daniel and now into Mark is that you know Daniel really left us with this heightened sense of you know God's got something big in the works and it's coming right specifically when will this king and his kingdom the kingdom that will endure forever arrive so Mark picks up this word of Daniel and the words of the prophets and informs us that hey. The time has come, right? And this is verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. The forerunner has come. The King is on His way. This is the prologue. If you look from 1 to 15, this is Mark's prologue. 
And his title, the title of his book, the title of the chapter is The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, that's his name, right? Jesus. But his last name is not Christ. This is, that's a designation. Christ, the Son of God. Two things there, right? Christ literally is anointed one, okay, the one who would rule from David's line. But secondly, he's the Son of God. He may appear as man, but in this Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. And Mark tells us this plain from the start. He's the Son of God. But it was not plain to the people of Jesus' day. Not readily, anyway. They didn't have what we have here written down for us. They're experiencing it. They're putting the pieces together as it is becoming known. So this prologue, if you think about verses 1 to 15, it explains to us the reason for why Mark has written this down. Right? It's the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is good news. i got something to share with you. The King has come. He has come. And His name is Jesus. Now, it was believed that when the Christ came, when the Messiah showed up, He was going to liberate the nation. Right? Politically speaking, he's going to crush Israel's enemies. He's going to establish her glory. And this kingdom is going to fill the earth. Right? And he's, so when Jesus came, or when the Christ came, whoever that was, it would be with power. But, how is the long-awaited king debuted? Okay. What does his appearance look like? What, what marks his beginning? If I could ask that, is it, is it fireworks? Is it, hey, I'm here! Boom! Right? Laser show! This Messiah is here! How is he presented? And seeing how he's presented to us, to the world, what does that tell you about what it really means to be the Son of God? Okay. Number one. Here it is in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. And get this. Was baptized by John in the Jordan. First thing I'd say this. Number one, that Jesus is the willing Son of God. Did you see that? Jesus was baptized. John did not come to baptize Jesus. Jesus came to John, right? He goes out to the wilderness. This is his action, his decision. Now, but here's the question, though. Why did Jesus come to be baptized? What was he doing? Because remember, John was proclaiming in his preaching that God's judgment is coming. And the surrounding area, Jerusalem, Judea, all of them, they were responding, right? They were humble, they were convicted, uh, they, and they demonstrated this spirit of repentance by being baptized. They went into the Jordan River and went under and came up, right? And this, by the way, was unheard of for Jewish people. Jewish people didn't do this. Baptism was only for Gentile converts. If they wanted to become Jews, then they went to this ritual washing, like a baptism. But the people's willingness to be baptized showed how devastated they really were about their own sinfulness. John's preaching 
got to them. We need to be saved. So John was making them ready, but it wasn't just leading them in repentance, but he was making them ready to receive the salvation, right? In fact, John would say, I'm just the opening act. So you see in verse 7, and this is what he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John knows my role is preparatory, okay? I'm just making way for one who's stronger than I am. One who will baptize you with the coming Spirit, the promised Spirit from the Old Testament. And get this, while John is preaching these things, saying he's coming, the very one that he's preaching about shows up in order to be baptized by him. And the question is, why? Well, notice what it doesn't say, right? It doesn't say that Jesus came confessing his sins, does it? Well, that's how the people came to John, right? Back in verse 5, right? And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins, right? It doesn't say that about Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus didn't have any sins to confess. And yet, he is participating in a baptism of repentance. And we say, why? Why did he come to be baptized? You read the other Gospels, you find out even John resisted. He said, no, no, I should be the one being baptized by you. And you're coming to me? And Jesus' response to him was this, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. What was Jesus doing? Well, we know this, he's fulfilling all righteousness. What does that mean? It's fitting, he says, that I be baptized. Well, the only explanation I come up with is this. In Isaiah 53, verse 11, it says, Out of the anguish of his soul, speaking of Messiah, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted. What's the word? Righteous. He's going to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' life mission then, okay, his baptism is to make many to be accounted righteous. We're not righteous. We need His righteousness. Jesus' decision to be baptized was Him then associating with me, with sinful man. He's placing Himself among the guilty. In other words, He jumped in with us to save us. He's not in the ivory tower. He's not aloof from our struggles. He's in the trenches with us. He did not need the saving, but we did. So Jesus' baptism then is this. It's Him saying, I'm with you. I'm with you. And it's the definitive moment where He committed that His way would be the way of the cross. So the inaugural event, when Jesus says, here I am, it begins by saying this, I'm committed to being your Savior. He will be our suffering servant. And this explains why later in Mark 10, Jesus uses this thought of baptism as a metaphor for his death. He asks his disciples, 
Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So, baptism pictures his death. And this is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to die. As Jesus is here immersed under the water by John, he will later be immersed in death. Right? He will be buried. And again, the only reason Jesus would undergo the baptism of the cross is not for the sins that he had, but because he willingly chose to bear the sins of us. Right? It's in order to make many righteous. So he must pay for their sin. And that will cost his life. But baptism goes further than that, right? Because it's not just about the going down, but it's also about the the rising up, right? That Jesus is coming up again out of the water, which means, kind of hints to us that death will not be his end, will it? Life will follow. So baptism really becomes, for the Christian, okay, um, a central part of what it means. That death before life. I must die to myself, right? The old me must die with Him, with Jesus. Like Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. Think about that. I have been crucified with Jesus Christ. And it's no longer I who live now, but it's Christ who lives in me. So this is why Jesus has commanded His followers to participate in water baptism. It reminds us of the spiritual reality that the moment you repented, the moment you believed, you were utterly united to Him. So, I love this. So, if you just, we want to get a clear idea of this. Baptism signifies our entrance into this new life. I've died with Him, right? Life is no longer by my rules and my way or for my glory. I'm not a slave to sin anymore, but I'm not dead either. I didn't stay under the water, I live. Well, how? The work has begun in my heart. I live by faith in the Son of God, and I'm truly free. So, He's baptized me with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you. The only other symbol that Jesus commanded His followers was to eat and drink in memory of what He did for us. We call it the Lord's Supper. So think about it. Water baptism is done once. After we have believed and confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a, it's a confession. This is, what, this is where I stand. But the meal, on the other hand, is done repeatedly, right? We do this often. Ideally, okay, after you've been baptized. Now, in our church, okay, we recognize that there may be a gap between the time when you believe and the time when you have your, your baptism. So... We do not have the means here to readily baptize them. If we did, we would. We don't have a baptismal. And as last I checked, we probably don't want to go outside and do it right now, do we? And that's okay. What matters is what? That God has done the work in you. You've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Okay. At the same time, if you are a believer, there is no reason to purposefully hold off being baptized. Okay. Because it signifies your entrance into the life of faith. Isn't it kind of silly to think that, you know, you've been a believer for 30 years now and you've never baptized, you never entered, you never did the thing that signifies your entrance into the new life? You know, our problem is sometimes we think we've got to get some high spirituality before we can, we can do this. That's not the way. This is how you come in. Baptism is not for those who have their lives put together. It's for those who have confessed Jesus Christ. That's it. 
You don't have to have a speech ready. But Jesus does expect for us to do this publicly, right? To say, hey, my allegiance is with him now, right? The New Testament doesn't have unbaptized believers. They get baptized. But between the time when you believe and the time of your baptism, if there's a gap there for practical purposes, you can and most certainly should eat the meal of the Lord's Supper, right? And we do this often. We do it repeatedly because it reminds us that we must always remain connected to Jesus Christ. Right? He said, abide in me, remain in me, be fed from me. So these two ordinances then right, signify our entrance right, and then our continuation in the life of faith. Those two things. The danger is that people often rely on the outward observances, and they do those things, when they've never experienced the inward change, right? Because those are not what saves you. And they're not going to benefit you whatsoever apart from faith in Jesus. These are meant to reinforce faith, to feed faith. But without faith, they're simply, they're just empty rights. They don't mean anything. They're not going to free you from a propensity to sin. They're not going to take care of that. Jesus alone can do that. Okay? Which is why it's so important that you hear what happens on this occasion of his baptism and what follows. Remember, for Jesus, this is him committing, I'm going to be your Savior. That's why I'm being baptized. Okay? He's baptized for us. He's the willing Son of God. Now verse 10, right? And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being, look at this, torn open. The Spirit descending on him like a dove. And verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. The second thing I would see here is that Jesus is the empowered and beloved Son of God. This did not come from men, right? It wasn't men giving him this empowerment or this love. This is God's response to Jesus's willingness, right? And three things happen, right? All of these things direct us to who Jesus really is. That's what. That's why these are there, right? Number one, Mark tells us the heavens are torn open. Very strong word, very emphatic. It's only in Mark. It was used in the Old Testament to refer to cataclysmic events, okay? Like the Red Sea splitting, okay? Moses cleaving the rock. The Mount of Olives, one day, splitting in half. That's the kind of tearing going on here. And in Mark's Gospel, it's only used one other time. Do you know when? At the cross, at the atonement. And we read that the curtain in the temple is torn. Right? That's the same word, to tear. It's torn from top to bottom. So in both cases, both here and later on at the end of Mark, it's a supernatural occurrence in which we're made to think, hey, Who is this? Who is this that the heavens are torn open? Remember what Isaiah wrote? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It was a prophetic event that Isaiah talked about. Something that would happen at the end of time. And here it is. It's happened. God has torn the heavens open. Well, along with this dramatic event, the second thing you see here is that the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Actually, He descends into Jesus. That's the force of the Greek. 
He comes into him. The Spirit becomes the driving force of Jesus' life. You're going to see this already in verse 12, right? All that he is going to do is going to be by the direction, by the power of the Spirit of God. And that again leads us to ask, who is this upon whom the promised Spirit has now come, has now rested upon? Again, we're led back to see that this was spoken of about the Messiah, right? In Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Mark says the spirit's descending on him was like a dove. Think about that. Remember then, back in Genesis 1, verse 2, that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Same idea at the creation of the world. So, this is the inauguration of the new age wherein Jesus, through the Spirit, will make all things new. So, the heavens are torn open. The Spirit comes down like He did at the day of creation. Who in the world can this man be? Well, the third sign leaves no uncertainty, right? It's the climax of the event. The first two things Jesus saw happening, but in verse 11, the subject becomes a voice. A voice from heaven, and it says this, You are my beloved Son. With you, I'm well pleased. So now God declares that Jesus is the Son whom He loves. The reason, why? Why did God say this? The reason God expresses His deep affection for Jesus is that He has just committed to being the sacrificial Lamb, right? It's going to take away the sins of the world. And that pleased God. And this is the first, but not the last time God's going to say, He's my Son. He's going to do it again. When Remember when Jesus is transfigured? All His glory and His disciples are there. But later on, the words, are, the words of God are spoken to the disciples. He says, this is my beloved Son. Hey, listen to Him. But here, it's God talking to Jesus. You are my beloved Son. With you, I'm pleased. What does being the Son of God mean? Well, behind this, this saying, what God has spoken here, are three Old Testament texts. I just want to show them to you. The first we just looked at, but it was from Isaiah 42, right? Behold my servant, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. The one I take pleasure in. This, from Isaiah, is the first of the servant of the Lord songs. You know those Portions in Isaiah that talk about this messianic person, this one he calls the servant. And they culminate in the servant being scorned and killed in Isaiah 53. So what does it mean to be the Son of God? Well, the Son of God is a servant, servant of God, a servant who will suffer. That's what it means to be the Son of God. Also, we see this passage from Psalm I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Psalm 2, verse 7. It's a messianic psalm. It was written for the enthronement of Israel's king. But it was never perfectly fulfilled until this moment. Because Jesus was the only one who obeyed perfectly in that sonship. The son of God, therefore, is the true king. And thirdly, maybe you caught this. 
This is passage from Genesis. When God said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. There it is. Whom you love. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. Jesus is God's beloved son. The affection that Abraham had for Isaac, the one whom you love, that promised son, that's an echo of how much, of how deep God's love is for his son. God loves him. God spared Isaac, didn't he? Providing a ram in the thicket. But God did not spare his own son. Right? From the role of being the lamb. In fact, you could say this, that God brought down the knife on his own son. Not because he ever stopped loving him. He said, then what? Well, how's the song go? Oh, how he loves you and me. Now think for a minute. If there's anyone else throughout Scripture who has ever been called God's son. Is there anybody? Well, Israel was God's son. Remember this? Let my son go. That's what God said to Pharaoh. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So, we know Israel was called God's son, and Israel's king was called God's son in Psalm 2. But apart from that, there's only one other, and that's Adam. You see this there in Luke chapter 3. He's talking about the genealogy of Jesus, and you know he's the son of this, the son of this, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who is the son of God. Adam is the son of God. So you got Adam, Israel, the nation, and her king. We're all called God's son, but none of them succeeded. And so the question is, will Jesus? Will he? Well, there's no time for celebration. There's no baptismal after party. Instead, verse 12, the spirit who now is in Jesus immediately drives him out into the wilderness. Jesus has a divine appointment, right? The Spirit is the one who's leading him here. It's not an accident. It's not an unfortunate run-in. He's driven out there. Because you see this, the divine sonship's not assumed, okay? It must be tested. He must willingly choose to make God's will his own. And unlike Adam, who was hanging out in the back while Eve was eating that fruit, right? Didn't say anything. Unlike Israel who often shrinked back from obeying God. Jesus does not shrink at the Spirit's prompting, right? He's got a job to do. And so he heads out into the deep wilderness. Okay, by the way, this is not where you go for your your R&R. You don't plan your vacation in the uh, Judean wilderness. Right, Kevin? No, no. Probably not the place you want to hang out for a month. Well, how about 40 days? That's how long Jesus was there. We come to know he was fasting during that time. And there, Satan, okay, the adversary, comes to tempt him. But we know every attack that is given to Jesus, he turns back with the Word of God. Right? And in so doing, he gives us a pattern for how to fight temptations today. 
Jesus, it says, is surrounded with the wild animals, right? <clears throat> the wild beasts. And the idea is they seem to be in line with the territory. That's dangerous, the harshness of the wilderness. You could say this way, uh, Jesus is in Satan's turf. Okay. And yet, throughout the temptations, God sends his angels to minister to him. Right? God sends his attendants to help him. God will do the same for us. He often sends his messengers to assist us in the fight. Now, what's interesting is Mark does not record what happens. Right? He just says that Jesus has been tempted, and he was with the wild animals, and they were angels were ministering to him. Right? It doesn't clearly say that Jesus was victorious, but it is implied when you get to verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee doing what? Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So it's implied. Jesus has been victorious. But the point, I think, is this, that the reason Mark is so brief and doesn't mention is that, hey, this is only the beginning. This is round one for Jesus and Satan. Okay, There's 15 more rounds to go. And Satan's goal is to get Jesus to not suffer. He knows what he's committed to doing to be that suffering servant. No, Jesus says, no, I want you to serve yourself. You're the Son of God. Hey, use it to your own advantage. But Jesus' victories are foreshadowing that Satan will be defeated at the cross. His kingdom's coming down, right? His works are coming apart because the Son is determined with your salvation. So I see this, that third, Jesus is the proven Son of God. What a debut, right? Probably not how you or I would have planned it. But it's the way God declared and readied His Son for His mission. Okay, Because it wasn't about creating a showstopper. Hey, here's the Son of God. Come look. Come see. His baptism and His testing was about getting the mission to save our souls underway. Right? He's the willing Son of God. He's the empowered and beloved Son of God. And He's the proven Son of God. Mark's not mysterious whatsoever about this prologue, right? It's presented to stimulate our heart towards some action. Hey, what's the response that God is prodding your heart with this? Do you need to surrender your life to Him? Do you need to confess that your heart has been taken with other things besides the Son of God? Do you need to obey Him? Do you need to be baptized? Well, I'm going to pray. And as I do that, our worship team is going to come. We're going to lead one more song, just a responsive song to say, you know what, I want to glorify your name. Because you're worth it. You're worth it. Lord Jesus, we should be taken aback as we think about what happened, what took place at your baptism. For you showed with clarity that indeed you can be none other than the Son of God, one for whom the heavens were torn open, the Spirit came down in His fullness, and a voice declared, This is my beloved Son. And if He was beloved to you, O God, may He ever be beloved to us. As we were led this morning to think and pray that the love of Christ would be more and more and more known among us. I pray that 
as a result of what we've heard today. In Jesus' name, amen.